Welcome everyone to Drive to Win. I'm Justin Bell. I'm here at the Win Las Vegas. And of course, the show is presented by Mobile One for the love of driving. Well, it is a weekend off. Uh, a weekend off in Formula One terms is always a, a relative thing, I guess, because coming off the back of, you know, such an intense series of races in the second half of the, the, the calendar, there's a shift, isn't there, in where people are and how, which teams are doing well. McLaren right up there, Mercedes fighting each other. I mean, kind of some crazy stuff. Uh, but while the drivers might take off, and as you can see on their social media, having a pretty good time, uh, the teams naturally are doing what they do, and that is hundreds of men and women working very intently to bring their best game for not just themselves, their their departments, the, the drivers, the sponsors. Everybody has to have a good showing going into these last five races. But it is, as I said on the last show, it is the big swing to the Americas. and. Everybody is excited about that I mean, race in Mexico. We've got Brazil. We've got the two in America. I mean, really, really great stuff. Uh, but of course, before we uh, get to talk about the next race, which is at Austin, I have a fantastic guest for you. I thought he was exactly the right guy to bring on for this, this sort of little break between as they, as they shift continents. But remember, it's all getting a bit racy here in Las Vegas. We are right on the cusp now. I can't believe I'm saying it. It's just a few weeks away before the Heineken Silver Grand Prix here in Las Vegas. And the strip is transforming. I was talking to Jeremiah, my, my producer just now. It, you can really see what's going on. I mean, they've got everything outside the Bellagio, these incredible corporate hospitalities going up. You see that lighting gantry going all the way down the strip. It's, you know, it's here. You can, you can see it taking shape. And uh, judging by the amount of conference calls I've had about activations and everything that's going on. It's really here, but it's here at the win in the biggest way. Uh, it is the place you can access from the outside. It isn't going to be uh, landlocked like so many of the other properties on the strip. You will be able to get into the win from the backside and then the racetrack is on the front side. So it's quite remarkable. And remember, there are many ways you can get involved and, and be here. I think people are starting to realize that Three months ago, when they first went and looked at the prices of coming to, to watch the Las Vegas Grand Prix, they're like, oh my God, I, I'd rather sit at home and watch TV. Now they're getting closer to the event and realizing how cool it's going to be. It's like Monaco, Montreal, everything all wrapped into one. People are going, yeah, I, I should be here. And uh, if you go to the website, winlasvegas.com slash experiences slash F1, you'll see there's still some pretty cool ways for you to be here. So packages for every level. So uh, enjoy it. Well, let's talk about our guest, uh, Jeff Swart. He is an American commercial film director, racer, photographer, cameraman, and author. But when I say that, I need to add some gravitas to that. When I say commercials, I mean Super Bowl commercials. Uh, when I say racer, I mean multiple winner of the world's toughest hill climb, the Pikes Peak hill climb. Uh, when I say photographer, he's created images that have defined the brands of Porsche, like Porsche, over the past few decades. When I say cameraman, he's so good that it's almost tough to work for him because everything he asks you to do, he can actually do better. And he's also an author. Just add that in there. So he's one of my heroes, definitely a guy I look up to. And if I could come back in the next life or even maybe improve on this one, I, there's a lot to learn from Jeff Swart. 
Jeff, I really, really am pleased to have you on the show. It's a real honor, my friend. Yep. Thanks. Good to be here. It's you, good. And and you look, you're back in Colorado. I'm sure the rigors of Rensport Reunion 7 are not that distant memories right now. <laughs> <laughs> not really, but that was a great combination of cars and you know, all the driving heroes along the way and just so fun to see everybody in one place and see so many drivers reunited with their cars and, you know, to be sitting at a table with Terry Bootson and Danny Sullivan, both driving 962s. And that was like the first time they'd probably done it in I don't know how many years. So yeah. it's really cool. Yeah. In every, which kind of is why I really wanted to get you on the show. Cause I realized, well, I always realize you, you have got this, these moments, you've had snapshots on more than, more than snapshots, windows into these incredible eras of our sport. And, and your career has, has led you to, to really have greater visibility than nearly anyone else I know. But, but today I wanted to about talk, talk about Formula One. Where, when did your Formula One journey start? How did Road and Track send you to your first Formula One race as a young American? You know, maybe even to step back from that a little bit is that, you know, in, in 1964, my parents took me to the first Indy 500 that I went to, the first big motor race. And mm. I decided at that event that um, I liked the sound of one person's car. And that was Jimmy Clark. And he was driving something other than an Offenhauser. And this Lotus was flashing around, you know, the speedway in a different way than the front engine Offenhauser cars were. And I, I started at that young age of nine years old to kind of figure out what sort of racing he did. And that was Formula One. And then when you kind of fast forward to me graduating from Art Center College of Design, you know, my highest aspiration was to do something for Road and Track magazine along the way. And, and uh, I was given a cover story and they realized that I had a deep desire also to be around Formula One. So uh, next thing I knew, I was kind of traveling around with Innes Ireland, who was quite a character and going to Rio de Janeiro and shooting the Formula One spotter's guide for Road and Track. And, you know, that era was so special and, and it continues to be special. But like you say, those windows into different moments of Formula One and, you know, it's it's changed so greatly, but yet the roots and the passion and the, the driving dynamic and everything that went on in those days has just been kind of reincarnated, reincarnated today. But you know, Formula One for me, even when I bicycled through Europe at 17 years old, I went to the Dutch Grand Prix and, you know, snuck into the pits in the paddock area and was down at eye level with Nicky Lauda and James Hunt and Clay Ragazzoni and those images and capturing those moments up close as as literally a kid attending a Formula One race with no real, you know, assignment from a magazine or anything, but I had that desire to be in the middle of it and, and be as close to it as possible. What a great story. But also I was just struck by how many of your friends would have been Formula What? Right? I mean, <laughs> it, because it was now everyone's like, oh, Formula One. But back then, as an American kid, you were pretty hardcore if you knew about Formula One. Yeah, and it really was Jimmy Clark. You know, it was that desire to know about more about his world because I was so attached to the sound of his car and the visual of his car at the Indy 500. And then 
I went to the Times Grand Prix with my dad to uh, the Can-Am race. And, you know, it, it was such a different time. And, and those drivers drove all different kinds of uh, uh, series at the time, too. So Jimmy Clark was not only running in Formula 2, Formula 1, and also uh, Can-Am. He uh, was in the line at the snack bar at Riverside Raceway, a few people ahead of me. And I remember, you know, asking my dad for the program and I, I pulled it out to get him to sign that program in line because I just thought he was my true hero at that time. Well, you just actually said it all without saying it. It's access. You had access yeah. that, that extended to everybody who touched Formula One at that point of view whether it was those amazing images, you know, taken by Jesse or whoever standing on the inside of a corner as Fangio sideways coming past inches away. That's obviously where your career went, but it all started with being able to stand behind Jimmy Clark and have, you know, in a snack line. It, there was a different type of access. Talk about that because it's almost, you know, we're struggling to get our F1 credentials right now to go to our own race here in Las Vegas. At the same time, back then, I want to go to a Formula One race. And you got in. So yeah. Talk about that access. <laughs> yeah, it, you know, it, it, things became more formal along the way for me, but certainly going to the Dutch Grand Prix, which is the first Formula One race I did, I literally rode there on my bicycle and, and showed up and, you know, got access to wherever I could go with sneaking into places and, and being there with a little 35 millimeter film camera shooting black and white film. But, you know, later on, I got assignments both from Road and Track Magazine and, and from also On Track Magazine, which was uh, another publication that was going on at the same time than ultimately Racer Magazine. But, you know, early on being in Southern California, we got the Long Beach Grand Prix and the Long Beach Grand Prix was an F1 race. And, you know, I, I was thinking a little bit the other day of, imagine this, is that Hans Duke was driving in the Long Beach Grand Prix and I had a deal with Canon cameras that had given me a whole bunch of different cameras. And they gave me a small 35 millimeter camera that I could trigger remotely or on an intervalometer. And I built this helmet, which was just like a Simpson helmet with two cameras on either side of the helmet. So it was balanced and two different lenses. And I walked around the paddock asking the drivers if somebody would wear this helmet for a lap, you know, during practice. Mm -hmm. And literally it was an aluminum cage on either side of this and two, you know, quite heavy 35 millimeter cameras. And Hans Stuck said, sure, I'll wear it. And he jokingly said to me, "Would do I get to keep the cameras? And, <laughs> and I was a little bit aghast because they were like the only cameras I had. But, you know, I, uh, we arranged a deal and, and uh, he drove a lap at the Long Beach Grand Prix with this wacky looking orange helmet, not even matching his own helmet. Who knows what size it was and, and two big 35 millimeter cameras on either side of it. Can you imagine doing that today? You know, it just would be unheard of. And, you know, those were the wild times that I was able to kind of get through in those days of uh, the early F1 days at Long Beach Grand Prix. I, I mean, think think how... You did that, and it's a bit like watching the, you know, whether you're watching the making of Grand Prix with James Garner or Steve McQueen, Le Mans, the size of the equipment, you know, bolted onto the cars. Well, Dad did in-car 956, but with a full-blown, you know, cinema camera. In the, in, now we can do it with these little baby things. And 
I there's a I was there was a shot that came up yesterday, Jeff, on Instagram. I should have sent it to you unless you saw it. One of the photographers put had a wonderful shot. He put his 35 millimeter inside someone's helmet and put it in the seat, obviously at all the right angles, just to show what you could see. And it was just a beautiful, yeah. beautiful shot. And you go, okay, it's not reinventing the wheel, but technology allows us to keep, keep, you know, evolving. And I mean, what do you, I was, I had this thought on Sunday, watching the in-car video from the helmet. And I thought what I would give to watch Senna from that view, yeah. right? I mean, or yeah. Michael Schumacher, we, we never will, but wow, the, the technology must, it must excite you to see the, the, the bird's eye views we can get now. It really does. And I think that photo you're referring to, I think it was Jamie Price or one of the great uh, F1, current yeah. F1 photographers. And it really was. And that the thing that was cool too, it was kind of shot in the twilight, like, you know, evening before you're yeah. on the grid and, uh, you know, that whole point of view. And it's funny because I have, you know, my point of view in my own filmmaking was always to give people a first person view of what it was like to race, what it was like to drive to the edge. And, you know, that's been my point of view coming. I come from a racer point of view into my filmmaking. So naturally I want to share with people what it's like to take a car to the edge, what the view is like, what the feeling is like, so that it's not just an observer, but more of a participant mm. point of view. And, and those kind of things like you talk about is that you know, I even in Art Center, which I graduated in 79 from Art Center, I was mounting cameras on boats and, you know, unlimited hydroplanes and formula cars and as many places as possible. But, you know, what we're able to do, you know, as we went into the GoPro era, and now we're even into a smaller, more miniature era of filmmaking. But the things we would have to do, I did a lot of uh, filming for CART at the time. And I wanted to give that point of view of what it was like, not just looking from your point of view in the car, but looking through the helmet, through the visor, all that sort of thing. And I remember working with Adrian Fernandez and Adrian, um, we cut a helmet, one of his helmets uh, that we had gotten from uh, his manufacturer, cut it in half and put the camera inside because it couldn't even begin to even fit inside the camera, inside the helmet and that point of view. And, you know, here this whole rig happened with a half a helmet ahead of him so that he could flip down his visor in front of the camera lens as he drove out of the pits. And, you know, all those things we had to go through, which now can be contained in the smallest little tiny cameras. And I think it really has become a very exciting era of truly getting to see what these drivers get to feel and sense not just the point of view, but the vibrations and the, the, flaring and all this kind of stuff that goes on in the their through their vision through the visor of a helmet it's it's not a passive sport and no. the more we can get inside it the more intense it becomes yeah not a passive sport so it's it's incredible and you can hear in the booth sometimes they're like oh god i've never you know you know formula 1 uh media come up with a new camera angle and and you go god i've never seen that before um Let's move into today's Formula One era. You perhaps more than anyone can understand having been through the, sometimes the wasteland it felt like of being the, the and a Formula One supporter here in America, right? When we had sort of felt like decades of pretty boring racing um, at time. It was never decades, but it seemed to, you know, races that you could go to sleep in. Uh, what, 
in your words, has been the power of Drive to Survive. That, that as a storyteller, you, I'm hoping that you look at it like I do as, as something extraordinary from your point of view. Yeah, I think Drive to Survive has pulled back the curtain on a sport that was pretty controlled. And, and I think it developed the personalities. And, and that's what was great is suddenly we had the personalities. And, you know, Drive to Survive was really about the backmarkers in the beginning and how they can try to elevate themselves and move themselves forward. And it became so popular that all the teams eventually really kind of wanted to be involved at some level. Obviously, access is different per team, but it's really fascinating. And it, and it developed these personalities. And you realize that there's a human soul, a human personality, a, a a real tangible person underneath those helmets and behind the headsets on the pit wall. And it, it kind of, it elevated not just drivers, but elevated the whole team and the, you know, the pressure of the front wheelmen or the, or the pressure of the, you know, making those calls from a strategy standpoint. Mm -hmm. And, and then the background of the pressure of pulling sponsors and losing sponsors and all these things that, I love it because, you know, it was so, it's so easy to say that this is a sport that you push down with your right foot and you turn the wheel left and right. And this is what, this is what you do. And you just do that better than somebody else. It's so complex and so difficult. And every level of it is key to the other points moving forward and gelling as a team. And, you know, you look at Red Bull and you look at Haas and you look at these teams that are so different on the way they land on the grid. And you realize that, you know, all of the elements that they have to control are um, common to them, but how they control them and the ease in which some things happen for some teams where that's a struggle in another, this is what really develops the personalities. and. They, you know, it's emotional suddenly. It's not just watching cars go around a track. And I, I think, you know, my own kids, I can say are they, when we sit down at the dinner table, sometimes when we all get together, they know more about the background of a lot of these races and, and teams than I do because they're so into it now. And I love it that it's just elevated it in such a tangible way. It, it, it peels back the curtain and lets us understand so many different levels. And, you know, us as individuals out in the real world, some of us deal with commerce, some of us deal with, you know, kind of uh, business in different ways or, or all these things. And I think that it, you realize that a Formula One team has so many elements to it, so many pieces that you can actually understand as a, as a person in your own field. And I think that's uh, the breakdown of it's really allowed us to be attached on so many different levels. It's not just motor oils and rubber and engines and drivers. It's so many other things. Yeah. And the economics of Formula One, each is so gargantuan. The ecosystem, it, it, they're all like countries joining, you know, a, a United Nations, each one, the the thousands of people that work for it, the the sponsors, the demands, the marketing. I, I've got to say, I it not just drive to survive, but doing the show, but it's opened up, you know, the business side of it, even to me who's who's been pretty aware of it. And you work with brands so much. You work, you understand, as you said, the business behind the face almost. Three races here in America, you know, bring it up to speed right now. 
we got Austin, and then we got Las Vegas. Unheard of when you were that little boy, you know, coming to the Long Beach Grand Prix. What a what is the economic impact? Do you do you feel and the the sporting impact of having Formula One have three races here in the states? Oh, you know, I was even thinking about in my first days of covering Formula One for Road and Track magazine, you know, I would shoot the race. It would be two months before the race would come out in the magazine. And, you know, you think about that and I would shoot the Formula One spotter's guide at Rio de Janeiro, the first race, the Brazilian Grand Prix. And my job was to shoot a portrait of every driver, the engine in every car, and the car on on the track, every car. And, you know, that was the spotter's guide, but that wouldn't come out for months once the Formula One season had started. And I think, you know, now today it's so immediate and it the the brand level of communication can integrate so much in not just the country it's in, but work globally. And I think Drive to Survive is obviously something that has motivated the awareness of it. But, you know, I did the Red Bull cross-country trip with, you know, um, Max and Daniel, and we started in San Francisco and went across the United States. But, you know, you look at every team almost has different levels of integration of storytelling throughout the year. And and I love that, that it's so, the awareness is so high. It used to be, as you know, Justin, when we'd get off the plane in Europe and the first thing we'd be hit with is our big, you know, lighted banners in the airport of something Formula One related. And we just didn't have that in the United States and to have three races here now and races that are really bringing it to the public. You know, uh, Coda is obviously an important one and it was the one that really kind of motivated F1 to buy into coming back to the U.S., but dropping into Miami, really placing it in front of that whole culture there, and then a kind of a globally recognized city like Las Vegas and put it down there. Because remember that Formula One came to Las Vegas and it ran around a parking lot, and it was really a non-event when it was there before. And here it's running down the strip. It's in the middle of things. It's it's really, whether you want to be drawn to it or not, it will be there in your face. And then the eyes of the world, because of the interest in Formula One, all of a sudden comes to Las Vegas through that. And, you know, you talk to the drivers and and, and the drivers are genuinely excited about being there. And yeah. I think that this is also the fun part is seeing the excitement internally of coming to a place like Las Vegas. Yeah, well well said. Well, you mentioned your road trip with Max. I'm not sure that would happen now. Um, but, you know, he, but I, I'm always intrigued. You know, you, you had someone like Max. Uh, you saw him as he was approaching his, you know, just unfolding his wings of greatness, really. Uh, what did you get to learn about him that you can see in the man now that's winning, you know, his third championship? Well, we should uh, maybe do a full disclosure here. You know, Max Max was on camera uh, at the factory in England, uh, but the rest of it was uh, kind of done by his stand-in in there. So, you know, the one-on-one Max side of things, I really didn't have that mm. to it. But I, I think that the idea that Red Bull would you know, in that, at that point, when we did that film, it was about where would uh, Formula One stop in the United States. So it became pit stop oriented uh, for the whole film. And that's why we did pit stops on the, um, you know, Oakland Bay Bridge and in 
in uh, Monument Valley and in Las Vegas. And the funny part is, is that we kind of only knew tidbits that there was a possibility of it coming to Florida, possibility of it coming to Las Vegas. And so ultimately our road trip went through all of those cities and there. And now we're sitting here with a, a great moment that the cars are actually racing and being in these the two cities that we depicted in that film. So that was special. But I will say it's really interesting because you're working with the test team people, the the people that are on, uh, 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 you know, working behind the scenes all the time for Formula One. And in Red Bull's case, it was so professional. Every shot we did, you know, when we went to San Francisco to race through the downtown San Francisco, we walked every section that we were filming on to make sure that the manhole covers were all the right height. There weren't any dips that were going to be marginal in terms of the car itself. And we would identify the bumps when we drove over Independence Pass, not far from where I live here in Colorado. Again, we identified every bump in the road, everything. And the, the professionalism of once that car started and into the shot was something I had not really ever encountered in my filming. It was a new, new level of kind of preciseness and precision. And, you know, we spent a good amount of time getting that car from San Francisco clear to Miami. So uh, it was definitely an eye opener of working back with the Formula One teams. Yeah. Wow. And watching him take the championship on, on set, you know, on Saturday was you know, well-deserved, wasn't it? He's been brilliant. He's been extraordinary and, and you, it, setting records with a, with a maturity. Uh, I mean, I'm a big fan and I think he, he well-deserved it. I, I totally agree. And I, I think that the commitment and the realization of, of just the absolute dedication to what he is doing is, is something that we can kind of start to appreciate just watching the drivers get out of the car last weekend. You know, they were the most physically exhausted. I've seen them at least in, in my recent watching of, of formula one, it was truly a brutal race on them and, and you know, they could barely walk. And uh, the feeling was they'd really done something. They'd that was really done physically demanding. Yeah. yeah. Well, before we let you go a little bit of fun, it is now time for the mobile one pit stop. For the love of driving, Jeff, I'm going to ask you just a few fun little questions. Um, which current Formula One driver would you like see take on Pike's Peak? Oh, geez, that's an interesting one. Um, I, I would love, you know, I have been around Lewis Hamilton multiple times in different events from Race of Champion and uh, early on with him. And I just think that... Uh, it would really be fun to sit there and watch him analyze and go after a place like that. I, I think that also, I think that he really enjoys uh, new challenges and, and uh, new things to kind of do. So I think that, you know, uh, some of the drivers would be so dedicated to F1 that they wouldn't consider it. So maybe, maybe if Lewis could uh, join us at Pikes Peak, that'd be pretty fun. Pretty cool. So would Raikkonen, I think. That would be good. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah. What were you going to say? Sorry. That'd be a good one. Yeah, he would be no, good. No, that would be a good one. Yeah. Um, yeah. Your favorite driver to photograph when you were actually going to the races in Formula One? Um, well, I was in an era of uh, Senna, and Senna was one of those people that when you 
got down on your knees next to the car and focused the lens on his eyes in that little slit of a helmet, you know, you realized, and it kind of still makes my hair stand up on my arm of just that you realize he was in a zone, he was in a world. And when your lens, because, you know, we were manually focusing and you pull that focus on that lens just to his eyes, you would realize I'm looking into somebody's world right there. And that was something very special. And I saw something in his eyes that I didn't see in a lot of other drivers. Most dangerous shot you ever took. <laughs> and you've done it oh, all. My. <laughs> oh, that, that's a tricky one. There's been a, there's been a few close calls and uh, your dad would actually tell you a funny story about uh, myself and him at, uh, at uh, the, the uh, uh, A1 ring at the time in uh, Austria. But, uh, you know, I think there, um, there are moments, certainly during the F1 race, we, at races, we were always left to be kind of in areas where, where there were a lot of photographers. But when we did have chances to uh, control the sequence, and I worked uh, a lot with the Williams Formula One team on Hewlett Packard for a while there. And we did uh, a great, uh, a great film with them once uh, that was about the computers could kind of run the cars and all. And I think that, you know, we would do a helicopter shot of chasing the Formula One cars around Silverstone and be as low as possible to it. And I just remember that the drivers, when they got out of the car, could feel the prop wash from the helicopter as we would fly over them, filming them. And I remember just thinking, okay, well, if they're feeling our prop wash and we're flat out in the helicopter, they're flat out in the cars, this is probably something we don't need to combine too much. <laughs> Great point. I see a lot of pictures of them, but your best car for a road trip. Uh, best car road trip? Yeah, yeah, best car for a road trip. Oh, best car for a road trip. I, you know, I, I guess I love these days a, a car that takes you back to an era of time where it just becomes timeless. I love, I kind of describe things as cars, modern cars will allow you to drive as fast as you want have the temperature as cool as you want, the music as loud as you want, you know, it can stop as fast as you want. All these things do that. And I love when you get an old car, it actually dictates your pace. And suddenly you're there with your arm on the edge of the window and, you know, things are quieter. There's no radio. It's just the motor purring along. And, you know, I think you've probably seen it, but I put a canoe on a 1953 Porsche and a big furry Bernie's mountain dog in the back. And I go up canoeing for the day on a lake somewhere here in Colorado. That's a pretty, that's, that's a pretty cool little road trip. And, and for me in the fast paced world that we're living in to just drive something that dictates my pace and tells me how fast to go. I like that. And I know the answer to this one, the best camera for every day. <laughs> the best camera for every day is that camera you carry in your pocket. And that's the one that's attached to your phone. And I've got to say, you know, I shot thousands and thousands of rolls of Kodachrome in my day of, you know, still photography. And what I can do on my phone is so far advanced to anything I could do in my professional life of, of still photography. And so I, I, I love it. And the spontaneity and the ability to capture things and also 
plays out the amount of times I'm inspired by other people posting pictures at the same events I was at and seeing that they saw something differently than I did. I think those kind of things are really pretty cool because I'm, you know, I'm a racer, I'm a competitor. And when I see somebody shooting something better than I got at an event, I, I want to up my game too. So it still, it still motivates me when I see other people's work. Perfect. Jeff, we could talk for hours. One day we will. Thank you so much. Um, enjoy, enjoy the race this weekend at Austin. I think it's going to be a we're going to see a lot going on, aren't we? Absolutely. And, and we are definitely in a golden era and, you know, shows like yours to provide background for these great events. All this is just such a mega time to be in and to be in the sport that is giving back so much at this point uh, and being able to explore it and experience it. It's just, it's really fun. I'm enjoying it. Perfect. Us too. Thanks a lot, Jeff. We'll see you soon. Okay. Hey, race fans. Justin Bell here. Well, if you're anything like me, driving probably means quite a lot to you and not just racing or driving. Nowadays, I'm sure you feel like I do sometimes. I'm just too distracted with texts and emails, work calls, social media to get out there and simply enjoy the open road. Well, I've always had a love for driving and that is what Mobile One is all about. A reminder that even when life starts to feel too full of screens and routines, the ultimate escape is waiting patiently in your driveway. Mobile One, for the love of driving. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Jeff. He is a truly impressive man. And every time I talk to him, I want to like raise my own game, which is a good thing because it needs raising sometimes. Austin Formula One, this weekend. I actually went to the inaugural race back in 2012 because I was so excited that we had a permanent, dedicated Formula One track New track built just outside Austin, Texas. The buzz was enormous. The infrastructure was freshly basically baked. And there was, while well, there was a lot of environmental and political reasons that the race wasn't, the track wasn't going to get built. When it was, it was outstanding. And, you know, just give context that first race, it, they had such great fan attendance. People really were drawn to get into the Formula One sphere. 117,492 fans turned up, which felt to me like it was at capacity. It was wild. But to show how big Formula One has become, how extraordinary the pull of Drive to Survive, when the 2022 gates closed, they had had a record 440,000 fans pass through the gates over the course of the weekend. So if that isn't a barometer on the success of Formula One in America than nothing else is. The track is spectacular. I mean, is it? Some people don't like it. Some people do. For, for me, driving it, I enjoyed the vast expanse of tarmac that you could mess up on and kind of come back, rejoin the track. Uh, but it is fast and it is reflective of, representative of the way modern day racetracks are built. Huge runoff areas, a lot of safety zones, very fast corners. And the the inspiration for the track really came from some of the best corners at some of the best racetracks around the world. Silverstone through the Beckett's Cops sequence. Then you had Hockenheim. They took a couple of corners from that. And okay, some of them are the wrong way around. But what they've done is really design, in their opinion, the ultimate driver's track. And we've seen some fine racing. For me, the visual impact of that start line uh, acceleration off the line up 11% grade to the first corner it has caused 
for some amazing overtakes because actually pole position really isn't the isn't the prime spot to be and often second place is. And I think you're going to see that because you can kind of come around the outside. But breaking uphill, of course, allows for the, the dynamics of the car. You can break that much later. It, it's just a stunning, a stunning racetrack. So I think we're going to see pretty some fireworks this weekend, especially with everything that came off the back of the last race and the tension and the, 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 the way you had, you know, the driver fatigue, everything that was involved in, in the last race in Qatar. Here you're coming to a, another racetrack that a lot of the drivers know very well, enormous amount of data. Remember 2022 was won by uh, Max Verstappen um, with Lewis Hamilton second, Charles Leclerc third. Not sure we'll see, uh, well, not three. I don't think we'll see three out of three repeating uh, those same positions. It would be interesting to see Hamilton up there. I feel the storylines to look after is that I do think Mercedes really are intending to ruin the McLaren party a little bit. I think that Lewis is in an interesting place right now. Trying, He's being usurped a little bit by George Russell. I think he has the burden of the team. I talked about that last week uh, with the show with my father. Derek Bell, I think, you know, he has a lot of pressure on him and to help rise the team up. George Russell is doesn't really have to join in that as much. He can, he's young, he's fresh, he can just do what he wants uh, to push. So I'm thinking we're going to see that. I think um, Lando Norris is going to really be spun up tight to dethrone the uh, or derail the Oscar Piastri run ahead of him. He's been faster in qualifying, in practices, he's out. You know, he, he has been on the podium. He got the first win in the sprint race. And I think it's a very big deal for Lando to reestablish himself as, as the number one. Of course, it's all collaborative. You've got to, you know, rising tides lifts all boats. Zach Brown wants McLaren back at the top. Uh, but Lando, I know he wants to, to be the guy. So uh, two chippy chappies there that are going to be racing it out on track. And Max, newly crowned three-time world champion, enjoying every moment of that as he should. You're seeing, you're seeing the uh, elation on his face, but he said something chilling, which was, you know, I have more races to win this year. And I think that's how he's going to approach it, guys. He is free of pressure. God, as if he needs to be any more liberated from, from pressure, but he'll be pushing himself through to the, um, to the end. So uh, I think if yeah, he could win a few more races, couldn't he? Uh, but we'll see. He's certainly not going to give them away to anyone. So lots of racing ahead in the States, but everything is gearing us up for Las Vegas. And you know what that means. You're going to be here. You're going to be watching on TV. I think we're going to have record crowds. Uh, but it all starts at the win the week before when we have on November 11th, the Las Vegas Concours out. I said every week um, because I'm getting really excited. It's out on the beautiful fairways of the Winds Golf Course. Normally not accessible to Terrific golfers like me, maybe you too. Uh, but you can be here and it's a, a very nominal entry fee. You can be around some of the best cars of every generation. I mean, literally, when I um, look at this view, we have hypercars. I mean, McLaren's, Bugatti's, Koenigsegg's. We have concept and culture cars and we have EVs. I mean, some of the latest EVs that, that no one's actually got to see yet. There's a Tour d'Elegance on the Sunday, which will be fantastic. And some really great categories, an unusual take on a Concours, and I think you would really enjoy it. So if you are, maybe you're not able to come to the Grand Prix, but you should definitely be here and check out the Concours d'Elegance. And that is at lasvegasconcours.com. You can find out a lot more about it. 
bring your family. Say you were here. It's going to be big and lots of celebrities. Well, thanks a lot, guys. The next time I talk to you, we will be digesting and dissecting Austin. And I think that we're going to have a lot to talk about. Thanks for watching, guys. Thank you very much to The Win for having me. And of course, to Mobile One, because they are for the love of driving. See you next week.